Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right word so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that King Saul decided, instead of having 12 separate militia-style groups, it was time for him to form an army for himself. So he took 3,000 men initially to become the personal bodyguards for he and his son Jonathan. Since he was anointed king over Israel, he wanted to be free from the Philistine oppression. I mean, after all, no king wants to be hindered in what they want to do. 
I also believe that Jonathan did not act on his own. Rather, he was sent to attack the garrison outpost, which he did successfully. Later on, we'll see that the Philistine garrisons might not have had all that many men, 20 to 200 maybe, in each one. So a thousand men against a few? I would certainly hope that he would have been successful. This attack on the garrison and the defeat of the garrison really upset the Philistines because Israel was no longer being an easy target. So they put together a few men to squash this uprising. They put together 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and a foot brigade so large they were like the sands on the seashore. That's just a few things to put down a small uprising. Before every battle took place, a sacrifice would be made to the Lord to get his blessing and possible help for a victory. Now Saul figured he could not wait any longer for Samuel to show up to make the sacrifice, so he took it upon himself to do it. And as soon as it was finished, Samuel arrived and confronted Saul about his sin. Now Saul, he just could not accept the responsibility for his actions. So in the end, he blamed both Samuel and God for his actions. When you look at the scene, Israel was outnumbered close to 100, or 100 to 1 or more. The people who showed up to fight were so distraught at what they saw, they ran and hid in caves, thickets, cliffs, cellars, and in pits. Now it is true that smaller armies can beat bigger ones if they had better and more powerful weapons. But what they had for weapons were a joke compared to the Philistine army. They had sticks, stones, sharpened farm implements, and they were going up against swords, spears, armor, shields, and chariots. They are definitely out-armed. However, at this point in time, Israel as a whole is right with God. So their fear should have been unfounded. The last time I checked, God was more powerful than swords, armor, spears, shields, and even chariots. Remember what he did with the judges? Remember Shamgar? Judges 3.31. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. For anyone who is unaware of what an ox goad is, it's a sharp stick with a hook on the very, or close to the very end, and it's used to touch the heels of the cattle-type critters to make them go where you want them to go. All of this had to have been on Jonathan's mind as we continue with 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 3. Now came, Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah, under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migran. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Atub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. As I stated last time, Jonathan is a very interesting character. He's very different from his father. I believe that he was a godly man, one who was brave and a strong strategist when it came to fighting. He is going to become one of David's closest friends, and he's one that's going to protect him from his father. Now, Jonathan is sitting there with his armor bearer and decides to do something bold, daring even. Let's go and see what the Philistines are doing. We are not told that the Holy Spirit was coming upon him or that God had even spoken directly to him. As stated, I believe that he was a godly man who knew that God has done some pretty miraculous things with very little. 
He is not going to sit around and wait for the attack to come. He is trusting in God to do something great with him. So he goes on the attack. He does not tell his father he's going to do this. He would just say no. And if anyone else knew, it would likely be assumed that he was a little off his nut and was going to get himself killed in the process. Saul is just sitting and waiting for who knows what. 1 Samuel 14, verses 4 and 5. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bezaz, and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north opposite of Michmash, and the other on the south opposite of Geba. Now, did I mention that Jonathan was a pretty good strategist where war was concerned? At one point, the path that he used to approach the Philistine garrison was narrowed severely by two sharp crags, Bozaz meaning surpassing white, glistening, and the other Senna, meaning thorny. This would be a very strategic defensive position that one could easily defend with just one man. Huh, remember Shamgar? He would never have found this place if he had not trusted God and believed God could do something great with just one man. 1 Samuel 14, verses 6 and 7. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Do you see the faith being displayed here? Jonathan was not alone here, though. He had his armor bearer with him. Armor bearers were loyal people who helped the officers suit up for battle. They took care of the weapons, making sure they were clean and sharp. They carried the equipment so that the officer was not tired when the time came for battle. When Jonathan made the statements and suggestions he has, the man could have easily said, Are you crazy? We are just two against so many. I think it would be a bad idea to do this. Now, if he had done that, that would have possibly caused doubts in Jonathan's faith and trust in God. Instead, he tells him, Go for it. I'll be with you covering your back. What a great example for us today. Even if we don't, as a person, have the courage to step out in faith like Jonathan does, maybe we could be like the armor bearer and give support and stand behind and encourage that person who does. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Jonathan, on their way, kind of sets out a fleece. He tells the man with him, look, when we show ourselves, if they say, wait until we come to you, then we will know that this is not what God wants us to do. But if they tell us to come up to them, then we know that God is with us and we will be victorious in our endeavors. As you can guess, they said, come up to us. God was going to do something miraculous through them. 1 Samuel 14, verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. When we step out in trust and faith, 
or when God gives us a task that we say yes to, does not mean it will necessarily be an easy thing to accomplish. Most of the times we will have to work very hard to accomplish it. The picture of this in this situation that came to my mind was a scene from the movie, The Princess Bride, where Wesley was climbing the cliffs of despair to try and rescue Princess Buttercup. Indigo Montoya had just cut the rope he was climbing, and when he did not hear a scream, he looked over the edge and saw Wesley still climbing, using his hands and his feet. He was struggling to get to the top. Here, Jonathan climbs up to them using his hands and feet, and his man that's with him has to do the same thing. He could have easily made excuses about how difficult this was, or he could have just said, that looks so hard, I'll just stop and pray about it instead. Maybe I'll pray that someone else will come along and do this in my place. When we accept the task that God has given us, we need to have the trust and faith that he will do what he says he will do, doing our best to complete it no matter how difficult that task becomes. Could Jonathan and his armor bearer have defeated all of the Philistines, all 30,000 chariots, all that? Well, I'm sure he could have with God's help. And you know what? God helped. 1 Samuel 14, verse 15. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. God provided an earthquake to disorient and confuse them, helping dispatch the Philistine army. When the watchmen in Saul's camp saw what was happening, they alerted Saul. The first thing he thought about was not, was this God doing this? Was this God taking care of business? That was far from his first thought. His first thought was, who is not here in our camp that's causing this and is going to steal my glory? and get the credit for this. He had the leaders basically call the roll to see if anyone was missing. And lo and behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Instead of assembling the small army he had with him and join the battle, he tried to show just how spiritual he was by calling for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought forth. If he made a great show of all this, maybe the people would have the courage to fight believing God was there. However, while he was giving the orders, the ruckus was getting louder and worse in the Philistine camp. 1 Samuel 14, verses 20 through 23. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond beth -Avon. Who ended up with that great victory? God did. God created a situation like he usually does and creates confusion and chaos in an enemy's camp. He provided an earthquake that only affected the Philistines. The end result, just like Gideon's experience, they were turning on themselves and creating more damage to each other, killing each other than the Israelites could have ever done. I believe I want God fighting with and for me instead of relying on myself for a victory. The one other thing I want to point out here as we continue, before we continue is did you notice some of the Israelites had actually defected to the Philistines? If it came right down to it and a battle pursuit, they would have fought with the Philistines. Now, we already knew that most of the Israelites hid themselves in caves and pits and thickets and cliffs and such, but some had actually defected. When you look at these four verses, you can see that there are four types or classes of people that are described that I would like to compare with the Christian community of today's times. 
First, you have Saul and his little minor army. Let's call them the holdbacks. They had the numbers and believed in God, but they were waiting for God to show them what to do. They held back and would not do anything until they perceived it was safe for them to join. Now, God wants us to boldly step out in faith and go and do what he wants us to do, or at least try. It was better to come out now than never to fight on the side of God. Second, we have the sellouts. This was the bunch of defectors who sold out to the enemy. They wanted to be with the winners or the perceived winners. When it was thought the Philistines were going to win big time, they joined them. Only to turn back and join Israel again when they saw that the Israelites were going to be victorious. They, these people constantly change sides to avoid any major trouble or conflict. This group is a very wishy-washy one who don't want anyone to look down on them. Do we stick with our faith while it's cool and neat, only to change to a worldly view when confronted with trouble or when it's no longer cool to be considered a Christian? I know it's hard to believe, but I find this group of people when it comes to the older Northwest Christian teens. I can ask them on a Monday morning, the ones that I know are in the with the Northwest Christian teens, how was the get-together last night? And they'll go, what get-together? I was at home. And I know they weren't. They were there. But they're so embarrassed to tell people that, hey, I'm a Christian, and I do fun Christian things. Again, it was better to come out now and fight than to never fight on the side of God. Third, we have the hideouts. These were the people who, were, who hid when things looked really impossible and desperately tough. For our times comparison, we know, that God, we know what God wants us to do, but it looks too scary to even attempt to try to accomplish his will. They will only join the battle when the odds seem okay. I think these people are afraid to face a strong challenge when it really counts. Again, it was better to come out now than never to fight on the side of God. The final was the bold and trusting in faith. Now, you know who that was. That's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Solid risk takers, unafraid to step out and take chances to do God's will. Now, don't get me wrong or take offense at what is being said. I'm not trying to guilt anyone about anything. God loves you if you are a holdout, sellout, or a hideout. He still loves you. He wants you to join in the battle right now. It's better now than never. Proverbs 12, 31 from the message. Do your best, prepare for the worst, and trust God to bring victory. God wants us to be bold and have faith in him, trusting him to have our backs under any circumstance or situation we face. Go out and try and do something so bold that only God can make it work. Even if we don't have that courage, maybe, just maybe, we could support someone who can. 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Once again, Saul decided to show just how spiritual he was. He decided to hold a forced fast. They were in the middle of a great battle and chasing down the Philistine army to destroy it. Have you ever been doing something so strenuous that you did not take the time to stop and eat? What happened? I myself would get really weak and lose focus on what I was doing. Even today when I am working around the house, Amy can tell when I get hungry. I get a little grumpy and a little short. When she recognizes this, she tells me to stop and eat. Saul's command to fast 
and curse anyone who breaks is a false spiritual show. Because when we look at his statement, his focus is only on himself once again. Nobody do anything cursed if you eat until I have avenged myself on my enemies, not God's enemies, not your enemies, but mine. Mark 7, verses 7 through 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandments of God. You hold to, to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. Nowhere will you find it in the Bible where God says, during a battle, you must stop short and of uh, total victory and fast before you can continue. This section of the chapter is a good lesson about legalism. Legalism, it, is, uh, it takes God's laws and God's precepts and claims he can make them better just like the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of Christ's day. When man makes laws above God's laws, claiming, if you do what I say is wrong, then you have sinned. Legalism makes the victory over sin less than it could have been. In all reality, legalism leads people into sin. Legalism promotes rebellion. Let me give you an example. Psychiatrists have performed experiments with kids. They will lock a kid in a room full of toys and games, more things than they've ever had to play with in their life. And they tell them, you can play with everything in this room for as long as you want. Enjoy yourself, but under no circumstances are you to touch the doorknob. And then they leave, and they go into the next room, which is behind a two-way mirror, and they watch. It may not happen immediately, but that child will play with the, with the toys and keep stealing glances to the doorknob. Eventually, they will wander over and touch that doorknob. They will touch it even if that psychiatrist tells them at the very beginning, if you touch that, something bad will happen. Eventually, they will touch it. That's what legalism does. 1 Samuel 14, verses 25 and 26. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people the They were immediately tempted with something they were forced to agree to. These people were hungry and getting weak, trying to keep up with the fleeing Philistines. They were more afraid of the curse Saul pronounced for disobedience to him that they just looked at it. This had to be pure torture for them. Jonathan, however, well, heck, he ate some of the honey. Maybe he was not there when his father did this. After all, he was out fighting pretty early in the day. The people who witnessed this, they told him what his father had proclaimed. And in 1 Samuel 14, verses 29 and 30, then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little honey? How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. This battle might have been over sooner if Saul had not forced the people to make this foolish oath with a terrible curse for breaking it. Was this oath made to God? No. He made them make it to him for his own false spiritual purposes. Saying this, we need to remember an oath is a powerful thing, whether made to God or not, even if it's really unlawful. The men continued to pursue and attack that day until they were completely exhausted and famished and could no longer continue. When evening came, they took the cattle, oxen, and sheep that they had captured, and they slaughtered them right there on the ground and ate them with the blood still in them. Now the priests were not happy about this 
at all because they were sinning against the law God had made. Deuteronomy 12, verses 23 through 25. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the ground like water. You shall not eat it, so it may be well with you and your sons after you, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Now Saul knew this was wrong and blamed the people and the leaders for the army sinning against God. All of this was a result from the oath that he forced them to make. Once again, he takes on the role of a priest, telling the priests and the military leaders to bring him a stone and then to have the people bring him their animals and slaughter them there on that stone. I would have to think that Saul was the one who did all the slaughtering. Then Saul built his first altar to the Lord. When the people had finished eating, Saul wanted to continue pursuing and attacking the Philistines all throughout the night. All his military commanders thought this was a pretty good idea, and the priest wanted to know if this is what God wanted to do or not. So they gathered together and prayed to God. God didn't answer. 1 Samuel 14, verses 38 and 39. Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened there, happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not, but not one of all the people answered him. Saul just knew that someone had sinned, and that's why God didn't answer. Obviously, he did not take into account that it was just wasn't God saying and relaying the message of, this is not what I want you to do. Saul still wanted to do what he wanted to do. After all, he's king and not God. So Saul separates himself and Jonathan from all the people and asks God to give a perfect lot. And wow, to his amazement, the people were justified and free of guilt and sin. He asked for the casting of a lot between him and Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Now remember, it is quite possible that he did not was not present when the oath was made. 1 Samuel 14, verses 43 and 44. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul would rather kill his own son than admit he was wrong. The people knew, uh, the people know that this as well. And in no uncertain terms, they tell Saul, he will not kill his son. Not the one who worked with God this day, delivering Israel from the trouble they faced. And you know, Jonathan did not die that day. As a matter of fact, Saul did not pursue and kill the Philistines that night. He went home and so did they. I ask and pray that we look deep into our lives this week. If we are not as bold as we should be, or if we tend to be a little uh, a, a little too legalistic, ask God to show you how to improve and become more of what he needs or wants you to be. 1 Samuel 14, verses 47 and 48. Now, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Saul never really had peace while he was king. Each battle he fought, he did so with determination and courage. But as but he, as the time continued, he became harsher in the punishments he dealt out. When all was said and done, any time Saul Saul saw any mighty man or a valiant one, he would make them part of his close guard instead of utilizing them to their fullest potential. And that's the sad state of affairs. This is what they were told a king would do. Take the best of everything to 
himself. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the lessons that you teach us all, all throughout Scripture. Stuff that is so applicable today, it's not funny. I ask, Lord, that you take us, you make us bold, you make us to the point where we're not afraid to step out and do what you need us to do. We will do so gladly no matter how difficult it gets because we know you're with us. We know that you have our back. You will never let us fail totally. There are times that we will fail when we're doing what we, we perceive to be your will. But at least we tried. At least we tried. I ask that you make us look at ourselves this week and see if we are uh, uh, partially legalistic in our points of view and in our actions. And if we are, point that out so that we can correct that. We don't want to have things that are above your laws. We don't want to have things that supersede what you've done. Your laws and prefects Precepts are perfect. Lord, just let us enjoy this day, this day that we have to celebrate communion in honor of what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for everything. Amen. Thank you.
I forgot to make mention earlier uh, why there was no podcast that sent last week. It was a Mission Sunday, and uh, I used the missionary's name uh, a couple of different times throughout things, and I could not post it because uh, their next venture that God has put on their hearts is to get out into the world and start going out of uh, certain parts of southern Africa, up into the northern part most, and start working with the the Muslim community. So that's why we did not have a podcast last Sunday.